0: Welcome to Toxic GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Toxic GS was recorded before a live audience.
1: Welcome to Toxic GS. I'm Dave Dassey, I'm a partner in the Investment Banking Division. We're delighted to have Rob Manfred here with us today, commissioner of Major League Baseball, 10th commissioner, I believe, of Major League Baseball, uh, elected in 2015, uh, and who spent over 25 years or so um, at the league. So Rob, thank you for taking the time to do this.
2: Glad to be here.
1: Why don't we go back and start maybe as as a kid. Baseball, sports, did you play? How'd How'd you think about the game? The jiver.
2: Yeah, I played um, only through little league, um, but I came from a um, big sports family. I have two, uh, two siblings, and y- y- you know, my dad. There wasn't a game that he didn't like or didn't play. So we. Um, I was not a. I, I played college tennis. Um, and was acceptable I was a terrible baseball player I mean just awful um, so even though I wasn't very good at it um, I stayed a big fan and as you went
1: through your career when did you did you ever think you wanted to be involved in in sports or
2: I was a fluke you know I, I really was I, I was a partner in a law firm in Washington um, one of our big clients was anheuser-busch i did a lot of anheuser-busch work um at breweries around the country um all labor you know labor work and um when the owners um had the problem with the collusion cases in the late 80s they were looking for new lawyers and because of the bush connection at that time ab still owned the cardinals Um, my firm morgan lewis was hired and um, I was kind of a, I was an associate at the time, I was assigned to the baseball account kind of as a prize for something else that I had worked on. Right. Yeah, so it was literally no plan, it was just kind of the luck of the draw.
1: Prior to becoming commissioner, I think two things, we talked a little bit about the labor um, piece you're given a lot of credit for, and then drug testing um, as well, where baseball went through a very, very difficult you know, period of time, but maybe just yeah, touch reflect
2: on those. Right, well, let's start with the, the labor piece because it's, you know, I, I worked for baseball as an outside lawyer from the late 80s through the strike in 94. Um, actually everybody else, including the partner whose client was, got fired during the strike. I was kind of the last man standing after the strike and it became my client um they tried to hire me a couple of times but it was a very tumultuous period i mean the the strike did a lot of damage you know there was not a permanent commissioner bud was bud seeley was the acting commissioner at the time um when he took the job permanently he asked me to come and you know come in house and take the labor job and it was i decided to do it um and it was regarded generally as one of the worst career moves of all time um you know at that time, no one had ever lasted in that job more than four years. Um, So I I fully expected, you know, I was gonna do a turn, see how I did, and you know, they were gonna spit me back out to the law firm, Um, but I did it because the lack of presence and continuity in labor had been a huge problem in baseball's labor relations. You know, every contract they'd go out and they'd hire, you know, some smart guy that they thought, you know, they're going to take the union on. That's a tough way to conduct labor relations. Um, you know, and I thought with some continuity we might be able to do better. We were lucky. You know, we got three deals done w- w- without um, having a labor dispute, and it really important to. Um, the industry, you know, the, the performance enhancing drug piece, um, really one of the toughest, um, chapters in in our history. Um, you know, it's easy to look backwards and, you know, believe me, plenty of people and writers have done it and been critical. The fact of the matter is that, um, in the mid, in the early nineties, you know, the kind of rap in baseball was you know you don't want to be too big our athletes you know need to be flexible and and those are the guys that are successful there was not a lot of weight training in the sport and then all of a sudden it started to change you know and guys were in the weight room and so people thought well hell they're in the weight room they're getting bigger that's you know yep. but you know there clearly um was more to it to that and than that um, we had an extraordinarily difficult time with the MLBPA, getting them to agree to drug testing. Um, but, you know, we kind of chipped away at it. Um, it you know, it's painful as it was, and, you know, it was painful for the supporters, painful for me personally, because I had to testify. You know, the, the the congressional hearings were a motivating force. There's no, you know, it helped us move the union. Um, and, um, y- you know, we have continued uh, to make Progress every single year in this area. I've, I've often said we had a meeting in the early 2000s. The then president of baseball called a meeting and said, You know, we have to figure out how, how to solve this drug problem. And looking back at it, you know, it was one of those meetings that had a goal that could never be achieved. The fact of the matter is, you never solve performance enhancing drugs. They work, the financial benefits from them are huge. And if you just think about it conceptually, the person who's trying to find a new way to cheat picks one track, right? And they're focused on that track. They're doing everything they can to avoid getting caught. You're trying to cover 120 tracks, right? Because there's all sorts of ways. And so you're know, you always chasing it just a little bit. And um, we have gotten into a good mentality that you just have to always stay vigilant and make sure that you always remember you're never (laughs) going to solve this problem. You just have to deal with it on an ongoing basis.
1: And you feel, as you, as you look at the league today and look at the players today and the union, it seems like there's there's certainly more alignment of interest with the union. Yep. Certainly, episodic or any individual player is going to be. Yeah, I, mean, I think you what may have ha- some you make a, incentives, right?
2: I mean, I think, you but you make a great point about the players. What happened is not only was there this public pressure that people yeah. appreciate because it was public, but the players. That were playing without using drugs became a really helpful force within the unit because what they were realizing is, you know, I don't want to do this, but if if I don't do it, I'm at a disadvantage to these other guys who are doing it. And as that dynamic became clear, they became a force. Um, within the group in terms of driving us um, to where we are today which you know we have I can't tell you perfect anybody who tells you you're perfect they, they don't understand the issue but um, we have a very very clean sport today you know groups like WADA and y- 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 Yasada that were very critical of us in the early years you know have u- uniformly agreed that we have the best program in professional sports
1: as you think, let's well, maybe turn a little bit to the future of baseball. Baseball, I mean, everybody talks about data analytics. It's prevalent in our business throughout the entire economy, certainly certainly in sports. Baseball was really on the, the cutting edge yeah. early, whether it was Bill James, and I'm sure there were others before Bill James. Just statistical analysis, right, rate, keeping score stats. Where do, you, where do you think the evolution of that is? In many ways, yeah. I mean, it it's, led to Moneyball.
2: Look, it's, it, it, it has revolutionized the game. And let me just talk about a couple aspects of it. You know, when when I started um in nineteen eighty eight, I was literally the only person carrying a computer in the industry. I mean, it, it it just did not exist. You know, whatever statistical analysis there was, it was, you know, there was there's a still is a book called The Baseball Register. It had every player yeah. you can look in there. And you know, GN's um used to make deals literally they'd sit down look at the register you know dave Dassey man he had 317 two years ago he had 298 um last year um, if i could get that kind of production you know he hit some home runs i'm gonna value him and you know if i could get that he, he's worth a lot of money well um what has happened um is now instead of looking at that Backward data, which we now understand is a fairly poor predictor of what's going to happen in the future with most players. You know, every single club has a model that predicts future uh, performance by players based on what they've done in the past, what their age is, other metrics that have been collected about their performance. So, so what does that do? That produces what I'm sure those of you who are fans have read about during this offseason, you know, there's a lot of players out there saying, you know, if I get to uh, free agency, you know, I've gone six years in the big leagues, um, I've earned a contract, right. okay? And, you know, I know why they feel that way, because historically, that's what happened, right? They, people looked at that six years of performance, they said, hey, you know, Dave Dassey's a pretty good player, I'm gonna pay him, and here we go, we're off to the races. The problem today is um, they're not paying you based on that past performance. They're paying you based on what the analytics say you're gonna do for them going forward. And that's a huge adjustment for players and has caused some player dissatisfaction. 25 years ago, most GMs were like some sort of former field person or scout that kind of work their way up and end up running you know, our, our GMs now, they, they, they look like all of you guys. I mean, you know, they, it's literally what they are, you know, analytical people who instead of applying their analytical skills to whether a particular transaction or investment makes sense, apply it to how you ought to put a baseball team together. And you know, that's driven the change that I'm talking about.
1: Maybe talk a little bit just on the analytics piece and the data and the stats that are out there. Just fan engagement, you were certainly Major League Baseball on the cutting edge setting up BAM tech, mm-hmm. which you know, quite frankly was remarkable in terms of what you were able to build that business into um, and ultimately sold to Disney.
2: Our um, linear fan base is old. Yeah. You know, um, sometimes um, people kind of put a wrap on the sport, because of that, the fact of the matter is, everybody's linear fan base is right, old, right, right? right? I mean, it, the people who watch television in a traditional mode are generally older than um, than the average in society. Um, we have tried um, strategically to make our content available on the platforms where people want to cons- consume it. That strategy kind of uh, uh, evolved in two, two ways. First, in the initial years, when Bob Bowman was running advanced media, um, our goal was to aggregate as much traffic at, on our platforms, that is, at bat, mlb.tv, as humanly possible. We are trying to become the central place where if you were a fan, you know, that's where you're gonna go. Um, I think that effort was really successful, um, and I still believe that those platforms are crucial for our AVIDs, okay? As time went by, we realized that um, we had, the avids, right? You got them already, right? And as you try to build your fan base, um, we came to the realization that we had to try to be available on other platforms um, without cannibalizing you know our ability to monetize it at bad or at MLB.tv or frankly through the cable model we we needed to be other places in order to attract those new fans thus the you know our deal with Twitter the Facebook deal that we did last year and renewed this year um we, we have a couple of other de- the the zone deal uh, it, it, you know th- those are efforts to make our content available to younger people in the way that they want to consume it. And it is important to remember that even put those to one side because they're more experiments, even at bat has a completely different demographic makeup than our traditional linear audience. It's not like there's not young people out there um, th- that are wanting to consume. The other thing that analytics has taught us is that the consumption, remember we sell kind of two things, right? We sell media content, and then, you know, we're a live product, right? And, and, and for us, because we pay 162 games, that live product, really, really important. And one of the other things that our analytics has taught us is that people um, who are younger, want to consume that live product in different ways. And what what do I mean by that? The clubs have been responsive. You can see it in the products they offer. For example, almost everybody now offers these monthly passes, right? You pay a monthly fee, you get in the ballpark. You don't have a seat necessarily, but once you get there, they then have built, you know, um, seating areas or stand-up areas that are essentially bars. I mean, they are very social. Um, They're the kind of places younger people like to consume. Um, you get them in the ballpark, then you use your, the ballpark app to try to upsell them, maybe into a seat, maybe into a dining experience, whatever. So we, we, analytics has taught us what do we need to do with our live product in order to drive that that fan base as well.
1: Trey, maybe maybe now's a good time just touch on the the gambling, gambling issue yeah. and issue or opportunity.
2: Yeah, so you know this is a diff- this has been a difficult one. Um, and we've really evolved on the topic. Remember, there is no such thing as the commissioner of baseball, the, the institution, um, were it not for concern over gambling, right? So you kind of start from a funny place. So I, you know, y- your job is to make sure gambling doesn't hurt the sport. You know, that, that, yeah. that was the original um, kind of motivation for the creation. Um, and you know we actually were a plaintiff, along with the other leagues, in the case against the state of New Jersey who were trying to um, undertake sports betting, right? That case ultimately makes its way to the Supreme Court. Well, we realize by the time they take CERT, another example of analytics at work, that in the kind of case, okay, Tenth um, Amendment case that this was, when the Supreme Court takes cert, okay, they 90% of the time reverse the lower court. So we knew what was coming. I mean, we, right. or we had a 90% yep. probability. So what do we do then? Well, fortunately, the Supreme Court doesn't move very fast, right? So we, we try to shift gears at that point. And I kind of put together a cross-discipline team of our, you know, brightest, mostly younger people, really, and they get charged with what's, what I regard to be a great project. Go and figure out, in countries where they have sports betting, what the leagues think about where they are and how they get there. So you get to go to great places. I mean, it's basically Europe and Australia, right? They're your two best. Yep. You know, so you get to go great places, and and it was really interesting, um, you know, you know, kind of what we learned. Put, put it in two buckets, legislatively. Um, what they said to us is get out there and protect your interests. If you are not proactive, um, the gambling interests will drive the legislation in a way that will not be to your benefit, okay? That prediction was 100% right. And let me tell you, we've lobbied lots of places on lots of issues. There is nobody more formidable than the gaming interests. I mean, they are really something. So that that was kind of lesson one. And then uh, on the commercial side, it's really interesting. We started to hear this word, over-gamblification. And I don't really think of the thing. Maybe it's a phrase. I don't know what the hell it is, but th- that combination of words. Um, and, and what um, the leagues were saying to us is we went too far, OK? Um, that, that you know, the presentation of our product was so wrapped up in sports betting that it produced backlash from, particularly from families with younger kids and backlash legislatively, okay? So, um, what we have tried to do is proceed with caution. Um, You know, we do have, we made a big sponsorship deal with MGM, why do we pick MGM? Because they're bigger, than just sports betting, right? They're not a bookmaker, they're an entertainment company. Yeah. We thought that was important, but it's, it was driven by sports betting. I mean, there's no, absolutely no yeah. question about that. Secondly, legislatively, we, we have um, been pretty successful um, in assuring that bets are gonna be settled based on official data. Why is that important? Well, we think it's important because it protects the consumer. It also gives us a nice revenue opportunity that is a step removed from the gambling process, right? We're selling a data feed just like we sell it to ESPN or whomever, Stats Inc., whatever. And, you know, there's somebody between us and the actual sports betting activity. Um, we, where we have not gone, um, you know, clubs called right away. Can we put kiosks in? Mm-hmm. We said not only do we not want kiosks in the stadium, you don't need kiosks. They have these new things; they're called mobile phones. That's how people are going to bet. Um, it'll, it'll be fine. Yep. Um, you're going to, um, you know, we've limited um, the exposure to gambling that clubs can do in the ballpark. We have not opened up. Um, the, the sports betting category for advertisement within our game broadcasts. Um, and, and, you know, look, I'm not saying we're not going some of those places later on, but we're trying to pro- kind of proceed with caution. Um, and the big play for us is not any of the revenue streams I've talked about, it is fan engagement, right? Um, it, it is an activity, particularly in a game that has natural breaks that keeps people engaged with the activity.
1: Everybody in this room spends a lot of time with clients, a lot of times you know, in negotiation. You've mm-hmm. you've handled some incredibly intense, high-profile, um, difficult situations from a negotiation perspective. Just any thoughts or advice in, in terms of how you approach yeah. negotiation or yeah. how, how you think about it?
2: I'm a huge preparation guy. I, I, I think what happens in a negotiation, Um, probably 75% of the time is determined by the preparation that goes into it. Um, I think people get confused on the topic of preparation. Some people think um, that means, you know, mapping out, you know, I'm going to propose this, I think he's going to propose that, I'm going to propose the other It's, It's not really that, it's understanding the substance of what's at issue. It's thinking about um, what the interests of the other side are and how you can address those interests um, in in a way that can get you to an agreement and deciding when you're gonna introduce the the concept that you think addresses their interest in order to build a, a bridge to the agreement. So a lot of it's done on the fly, but that, you know, preparation in advance puts you in a position um, uh, to make um, those decisions on the fly. Um, the other thing that, that uh, I, I think is really important, um, and I've engaged in a lot, you know, there is a, a particularly in a complicated deal, um, there is a momentum to the process, okay? and I'll say two things about momentum. Um, You need that momentum to get to a deal, right? You you have to manage the momentum to get to a deal because every momentum is what moves people, right? It's ultimately what moves people to compromise. The, The tricky thing is to manage the momentum in a way that doesn't get you into chasing a deal, right? You have to always retreat and ask yourself, You know, I can now make this deal. The momentum is driving me here. But if I don't have to make a deal, am I better off walking away from it? Am I better off saying, you know, no ma's, I'm out. So um, those are the kind of dynamics that I think about. Um, You know, I'm not a big, um, the whole, you know, how you conduct yourself at the table. I don't put a lot of stock on that. You know, some of it, you know. You sort of look at the people you know, and you know some people it's better if you're rational. Some people you just have to lay them out, you know. And you, you know, I mean, just—it is what it is. So.
1: Well, thank
0: you, Rob, very much for thank you. taking it was great.
1: so
2: much time. on perfect.
0: This podcast was recorded on April 17th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.